1: Hello and welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron. I'm at rajbalkroncom slash academia. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Itamar Theodore of Zifat Academic College in Israel on a very interesting publication, his Exploring the Bhagavad Gita, Philosophy, Structure and Meaning. Hello, Itamar. How are you?
0: Hello. Everything's fine. Good to hear you.
1: Yes, good to hear you. You know, we have, we have done a little work together. Um, I believe you published a paper um, from Bangkok's World Sensory Conference in 2015 on personhood.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. I've been there and I published personhood. I have much interest in uh, personhood, personalism, and in fact, I'm going to be presenting next week a paper in an international conference on personalism, which this year will take place in Israel, surprisingly enough here.
1: Oh, how convenient! So we've 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 worked together remotely. Um, I haven't had the pleasure of looking at this publication until um, preparing for this interview. One of one of the perks of doing this work really is having exposure to interesting works uh, such as this one. Um, now, for, I'm sure there are many people in our audience who um, are very familiar with the Bhagavad Gita either from uh, the perspective of scholarship. There probably are a number of listeners who may even use it in their personal life. And one thing I will say is, among the books we review here, this one has a great deal of um, application for those who are looking to interpret, uh, perhaps even apply the principles, the principles of the Bhagavad Gita. Would you agree? Yes, uh, I
0: fully really agree with that. And that was the, the purpose of my... Uh, Interpretation. I, I realize that the Gita is very rich, and is very flexible and open for various kinds of uh, interpretations. I realize that, and my own interpretation is an attempt to present uh, the Bhagavad Gita as having a unified structure, and potentially making that
1: into a philosophy, applied philosophy, if you like. Yes, definitely. Now, um. One of the things, I mean, there are a number of things there the work that I do is very different, but there are a number of parallel, parallels in that I also look at text um, and this idea that we can take our cues from the text itself. The text will tell us by its content and by its structure. I really do feel Sanskrit texts are structured so as to influence interpretation in some way. And it seems that you would agree with that idea.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I see the text as structured, and I, I, I'm trying to uh, reveal the structure as I understand that, of course. Yeah.
1: So tell us a little bit about um, the structure that you perceive, and, you know, you can feel free to talk about whatever you wish regarding the book or your work, but tell, tell our audience about the structure that you talk about in your book.
0: Well, the structure, I call it the three-story house structure, and it's based upon a traditional uh, view uh, considering the uh, Bhagavad Gita to be ladder-like. Uh, actually, this is one of the uh, ways to uh, consider the Bhagavad Gita as having a ladder structure. Arvind Sharma writes about this in other places. I, I, I did not invent that idea. And this idea, uh, I think that the roots are, are to be found with Vishvalat Chakravartin. That's the oldest source I found with this ladder idea. He was a 17th, 18th century Bengali writer. And according to this idea, the Bhagavad Gita has a ladder, which is a karma yoga ladder. One follows one's dharmic duty and ascends the ladder through various stages of internal purification, sublimation. One can follow one's dharma with a utilitarian approach. One can go higher and try to do it uh, through what I call dharmic utilitarianism. And then one can go higher and perform one's uh, duty without regard to the fruits. That's a very famous these very famous verses like uh, 247, Karmani eva dikaraste etc. You can perform your duty without. Regards the fruits, this very famous, central, famous idea of the Gita. Then one can go higher and perform one's dharmic duty as a type of yoga, which is a very interesting idea. Being a yogi, a karma yogi, and performing one's dharmic duty, but with an internal state of being a yogi, controlling one's mind, training one's mind and senses, developing inner meditation, and ultimately. One can perform one's dharmic duty as bhakti out of devotion, or alternatively, uh, in a position uh, close to that of Shankara's Advaita Vedanta, uh, of kind of a, 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 a monistic idea of merging uh, with Brahma. That's also possible, and Shankara did uh, comment upon the Bhagavad Gita. So that's, that's the ladder. And the three stories, that's kind of my own innovation, I would say. And that is dividing the text into three layers of stories, which each has its own unique language and categories. I call I call the first floor the humanistic form, a uh, floor of a uh, dharma. Uh, the second one, the, the 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 second floor of yoga, and the third one, the spiritual form. And we can see that in each in each floor, uh, there is a distinct set of ontology, and ethics. For example, in the first floor, you'll get the human being. That's ontology. But in the second floor, you'll get something else. That will be the spirit soul, the eternal Atman, the self, which is different. Or the ethics of the first floor would be to prosper in this world, whereas the ethics of the second floor would be indifference, a yogic, Ethics of indifference towards uh, samatva, towards success and failure, and the third floor will be the floor of bhakti, love God. So that's basically the structure uh, I see in the Gita, and according to uh, accordingly, uh, everyone it's quite universal. Everyone can find a particular dharma, uh, whether one is a, a, prof- a professional dharma or a personal dharma, and start ascending uh, the ladder while remaining uh, socially responsible, not, not, not relinquishing, but relinquishing internally why the fruits of one's labor, but externally adhering to Dharma, and in that sense, remaining socially responsible in the family, in society. So that's basically the way I envision the Bhagavad Gita's uh, structure.
1: The three-story house analogy is intriguing. Um, the first thought that comes to mind is that it should be abundantly clear to anybody who engages the Gita, whether by verse or, or chapter or someone who engages to read the whole thing in one sitting, it should be abundantly clear that there are contradictions left, right, and center, but also that these contradictions seem to me to apply to different, uh, degrees of resolution, different orders of resolution, even different orders of reality. So, um, if you have an issue with, uh, your health, you know, you're a medical issue that's at th- the issue is occurring at the order of biochemistry. You won't seek out a physicist to address the atoms in your tumor. Say it seems to me that the Gita is operating on different orders of reality and levels, levels of human experience. And so I really resonate with having three stories, um, with respect to which order of reality are we addressing now to navigate life. The first two um, strike me very much as, um, see see what I've done is I've looked at uh, various myths, the, the, the goddess mythologies of the Devi Mahatmya or even the epics through the lens of this binary of poverty and liberty, world affirmation, world denial royal ideology versus ascetic ideology. And it seems to me the first two stories of the house relate to what I call this double helix. The, 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 the first story of the house relates to pravati dharma, how to prosper in the world in a dharmic way. And the second story, if I'm not mistaken, of the house relates to the existential concerns or the the, the, the impulse of contemplation or, or or striving for some sort of spiritual goal. Um, Am I mischaracterizing these first two stories or is this the same?
0: I think you're right. I think the first one will be uh, Pravriti and the second one will be Nivritti will will will, will, uh, represent uh, the struggle, the endeavor to go there. Uh, The second story is characterized by a struggle. One struggles with one's mind and senses. Uh, all these verses, like uh, the second chapter about a turtle withdrawing its limbs within the shell, these verses which Gandhi uh, loved, these are second story uh, verses where one tries to uh, detach oneself from sense objects and build up an uh, internal uh, meditation, so to speak, so that would be the uh, That's that struggle mm. and then the third story would be beyond struggling when one has conquered if you like and sees struggling and is actually absorbed in that level of, moksha, of either moksha or bhakti love of God or a realization of oneness within that spiritual state
1: so the third level is the level of the awakened soul how one yeah. walks the world when one is awakened presumably yeah. how Krishna functions or presumably how um, the enlightened masters of India function type thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, so this is, this is fascinating. because So w- when I see the text, I see these two orders of reality, poverty and liberty, and I see that there's a clever interplay of what the problem is. The, the, the text starts off with a poverty problem, like a, a warrior needs to fight. This is a time of war. We need yeah. to protect the kingdom. And then the deeper problem is that he's suffering. He's lamenting. He's upset, and this this is what launches Krishna's discourse of, you know, the wise do not grieve over the living of the or the dead. You know, like well, what are you upset about? It's it's just really really fascinating. I almost want to say it's a sleight of hand, but it's not. It's very conscious, but it's very subtle. This this intermingling between is the issue to get him to stand up physically and fight, or is the issue to get him to stand up spiritually? Yeah,
0: I, I think you're really uh, really pointed at very. Important uh, juncture in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna throughout the first chapter speaks about I don't want to kill my teacher, don't want to die, don't want them to die, death, death, and this. And then Krishna says, Krishna changes the discussions, a point of view, according to the Copernican Revolution. He doesn't answer him directly, but he approaches the question from a higher level. He says, Death, I don't see any death, the soul is eternal, the self is eternal, which death. Do you see, I always existed, all these kings, you are, all these, you know, some of these verses, the soul is eternal, the, the he, 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 he approaches the problem from a, a different point of view altogether uh, with a vision of eternity. So that's actually a very, I think, dramatic uh, point in the Bhagavad Gita, the second chapter, where Krishna changes the level of discussion and speaks to Arjuna from a different point of view. Later he returns back to that praviti, a, a, a point of view in these a, a, these, these, chap, these verses about a happy adakshatriyas who can approach heaven through dharmic war and so forth. But these this, these, these verses about the self, the soul, these are, these represent a different point of view where Krishna climbs or goes up, ascends, ascends the, a, to, to a higher story and speaks from a higher point of view.
1: Well, if you enjoy imagery, and clearly you do, because of your three-story house analogy, you know, when I, when I think about what we call Hinduism, or certainly when I teach it, I think of the image of a double helix. And so I, I think of it as the Dharmic double helix. There's a poverty strand and a Nivrti strand. And both have to, they'll never touch. Neither strand of the double helix will ever touch. They're contradictory. They're structural opposites. But together they're woven. It appears to be one image. And you have to somehow see the poverty side and the niverty side. In that the problem isn't what Arjuna has to do. I mean, that is up to question. What your right action is, is up to question whether right action is being a butcher or not being a butcher for your dharma. Or being a warrior or not being a warrior. But the problem becomes how he feels about it, what he thinks about it, how he views it It becomes the problem of suffering and right seeing. And and so it seems to me that Krishna's ability to to, to reframe the problem, from the perspective of your read, I would say that's because he is in the third state. He is in the third level of the house. Only because he's in the third level of the house could he begin to see the first two so clearly and be able to shift between one and the other effortlessly. Whereas for us, we may be baffled to shift from both of these orders of reality, but he can presumably do that because he's in, he's, he's, in, he's at the third level of the house, which is really just the the apex um, of right seeing, you know, it seems to me. Uh,
0: I think this is a wonderful articulation of the Gita. I, I support, of course, and I think you're stating
1: it wonderfully. What, um, so, you know, I, I have, there's so much to say, and, um, Part of why this is a rich conversation is because it's about an extraordinarily rich text, like the Bhagavad Gita. You know, we have to keep in mind whether we're here to talk about the Bhagavad Gita or to talk about your book on the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> so oh. let's, let's limit it to the first and then we can expand into the, the second, uh, if time permits. You know, those among our audience are probably um, not going to be used to so accessible a book. This is a book wherein the Gita is um, translated and commented upon yes. now from the perspective of scholarship comment maybe tell uh, our audience uh, comment on the fact that this is a very atypical kind of uh, enterprise no, I
0: realize that. I, i've seen many gita editions and most often introduction and once they done <clears throat> the introduction they, they offer the full text there, there are some exceptions. One famous exception is uh, Zainer's, R.C. Zener's uh, Bhagavad Gita uh, edition, published by uh, Oxford University Press in the nineteen sixties, I believe. And he he actually he does two things, which I follow. One, he uh, divides the text into sections, which I've also done. I don't uh, offer a full uh, chapter, but I divide the chapter into sections of about ten verses each. I group them together. I also name them, which is kind of an editorial intervention, if you like. And then I offer a commentary, uh, trying to explain what's happening in this section. What is the text about? What is it saying? What is the significance? So I do that. And as I mentioned, I follow Rosaner. I see myself in some ways as continuing uh, his work, hopefully in some ways. So yeah, I, I am doing that. I am dividing the text into sections. And I'm offering a commentary uh, following each uh, section, a short commentary, uh, which will help to read the whole Gita uh, from beginning to end, that are about uh, 70 sections throughout the whole entire book. And each section is followed by uh, half a page, one page, a uh, commentary.
1: Something like that. Is the commentary geared towards academics, uh, scholars of the Gita, or is it geared towards aspirants, or both? I think... I
0: mean, in one of my reviewers, Hamza Stanton in, uh, in philosophy, uh, uh, East and West, has written that I actually offered two books in one. And I agree with that, that for the scholars, I would say that my main argument is the structure. That would be more interesting for scholars. And the uh, commentary would be more interesting, I think, for uh, readers, either uh, academic readers, uh, students, and also general readership. Uh, but perhaps also for academics, I, I'm not sure exactly about the borders, but I am aware of that uh, division between uh, a logical, a theoretical argument, which would be the structure uh, argument, and the, the, the commentary, which would be for uh, accessibility, for explaining, for maybe touching the spirituality of the text. Uh, yes, so I, I do agree uh, with that uh, distinction.
1: Well, it was more of a question in terms of the intended audience, because um, for me, personally, um, because of my background and my perspective on life, um, an academic book need not preclude a book that is useful for those trying to understand the, the text in their own lives. I mean, it's difficult to do, it's difficult to do them both well. Um, but for me, the, the, the richness of the Gita is not just as a repository of the history of ideas. The richness of the Gita is as a, a guide map to lived human experience. I mean, the whole bloody point of it is how do you live your life? And so, while that may not be uh, or fall squarely within the responsibility of an academic, certainly not a, of a historian of religion, um, maybe not even someone strangely doing philosophy or ethics. Uh, or even narrative theory, nevertheless, the the huge pink elephant in the room of anybody writing on these texts is that the text is meant to be embodied and lived. And we academics, we scholars, we, as in the times in which we are functioning as scholars, obviously need not, ought not, should not write from that perspective. But the, the um, the power is acknowledging that perspective we we must know that that perspective exists and that is the point of the text um i may be biased but my sense is that it's it's necessary to acknowledge the 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 life of the text do you, um how did this project come about did you have a history with the gita was this part of your studies did you have you know t- tell us about your interest in the text and how this this uh, book uh, arose.
0: Well, I I uh, began my uh, engagement uh, with Indian spirituality on a personal level. I have to admit that I was around uh, the age of twenty, and I started uh, <coughs> practicing yoga in various forms of uh, bhakti. And, so,
1: when when you say you're around the age of twenty, the, the 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 listeners may not know that was five ten years ago, correct?
0: I'm now 59 and a half. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you don't need to know your age, but to give them a sense of the epoch. This was a couple of so decades ago.
0: So yeah, yeah that, that, that's how I began my engagement. Personal uh, journey, if you like, into uh, Indian spirituality. And uh, it was fascinating. And then I decided to become an academic of that uh, field. And I, uh, I, I went to school and studied. That's, that's basically uh, my story. So I did have, and I hopefully I still have some experience of uh, Indian spirituality, although I don't think it's so strong as it was when I was young. But uh, and I, I'm, I'm definitely fascinated, and I became uh, a scholar of that uh, tradition.
1: Yeah. So in terms of the um, structure of the book, have you, have you come across any... Uh, work on ring composition. Is this familiar to you? Mm, not really, not really. No, it's, it's, it's not hugely popular, um, but uh, maybe I'll send you a link uh, after this conversation. The reason I ask is because I noticed that many Sanskrit compositions are composed as narrative rings, um, where they, the, 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 the structure of it is circular, and there's a, a midpoint in the text. From which you can interpret the rest of the text. It's an idea I played with while looking at the, at the goddess myths, and now I see ring composition everywhere. So I'll send it to you. But um, w- where did you get the inspiration of looking at the structure? Like, how did that come up for you? Was it a thinker? Did it, did it just strike you uh, naturally, or where did you where did that come from? Naturally, it, it wasn't
0: a particular thinker. I just I. I, I I just looked at the Gita and said, wow, there must be an... I remember even the moment it came, I was studying in my MA, and it came to me, we were studying philosophy of religion in one of these courses, and I said, wow, I have to figure out the structure of the Gita. It was something that I would say kind of internal. I did learn in a traditional seminar in India... Uh, before going to school, and I was exposed to this idea of the ladder. Uh, I gave credit in my book that uh, uh, school, and later I found out that the roots go to that thinking which I mentioned, Vishwanath it. So as far as the ladder, that that was a traditional idea, which I uh, uh, say, I... I I joined that with uh, a three a stories and made it a 3 stories house. So the idea of the ladder is something I was exposed before. I did divide the text uh, kind of myself into these three layers and brought it together into this uh, three-story house. Uh, so I did apply some traditional idea, but that passion for uh, structuring the Gita, for uh, Highlighting its structure for trying to show it as a unified text, I guess I had it, it struck me as something which one has to do i don 't know and the, this, the, it's
1: all, it seemed also obvious to me that the texts were structured in a very very conscious way, um, even when they were highly the more ironically the more redacted they are, the more quote unquote interpolations there are the the, the, the richer the, the that history to me the more consciously the final product was structured and so there was a great deal of effort put into what goes where what order the chapters occur in which part of the gita occurs in um devi Mahatmya, why is it the marketing purana they could have put it anywhere they could have put it anywhere why there has to be a reason this isn't a careless haphazard, hazard. Let's just stick it there because this has happens to be the pile of manuscripts we're we're, we're copying over today, and so um, so it's, it's abundantly clear. There's there to me anyhow. I agree with that insight that, that that there's a very conscious crafting of how the chapters are structured, and I don't think it's blatantly obvious because I think there are a number of things happening at the same time, right? Um, Like there's there is method to the madness, so
0: maybe that's nice. Yeah,
1: yeah, maybe you should say a little bit about specifically how you see the the work structured with respect to these three stories.
0: Well, uh, the first level, uh, that of Dharma, uh, has 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 a lot uh, to say about it. in general, it speaks about uh, Varna Ashrama Dharma, and that's quite universal. It, it aspires to encompass human society. It, 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 it actually uh, connects to, uh, or potentially connects to, each and every uh, human being. Everyone is doing some work, some kind of activity, and this can be sublimated, uh, whether it's personal, like being a father, a mother, or a son. Or, Husband, wife, and so forth, uh, whether being professional means uh, Brahmin, Chaturya, Vaishya, Shudra, uh, that actually encompasses the whole of human society. So it's very uh, wide and universal, and it's also a, a world-affirming. It's, it's 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 encouraging uh, prosperity. It actually wants to see the world uh, as a healthy, happy, peaceful, uh, a prosperous uh, place. So that, that is the first story. Then the second story is uh, more uh, existential. As you mentioned before, it's more existential. It uh, looks upon one's existential uh, state in life. Uh, What am I doing here? Who am I? Uh, How can I, what is the goal of life? uh, How can I uh, overcome this problem of uh, birth and death? And uh, while being in one's dharma, that That's maybe the, the very interesting part of the Gita. While being in one's dharma, one can uplift oneself and see things from a higher perspective, more spiritual, and in the same time, restrain oneself, become a more self-controlled, more, more of a yogi, more spiritual, and be a better person in society, not go to the forest, but work one's life, be in one's family, and be a karma yogi. So that's, that's a... a Higher level. Then, of course, uh, if you go to the third level, that's there the one can go into spiritual uh, realizations. Uh, one can have spiritual visions. That will be mystical visions, if you like. A love of God, seeing all creatures, seeing the oneness of all beings. That's a completely mystical uh, state. And one can do that while being in, in the world, while being dharmic. One can be a, a mystic. In one's work, so I, th- I think it's fascinating and it's all-encompassing and it, it, it touches all spheres of life. One can one can uh, find uh, oneself in the Gita wherever one is. Where, and now that's before even uh, touching the uh, the three gunas. That this sankhya idea of the three gunas. Uh, how can one look at oneself uh, uh, from the point of view of the gunas? I'm now in sattva, but perhaps now I'm in rajas. I'm in passion. Uh, but from that passion, I can be elevated. I can also engage uh, my passions in a yogic way. Even my tamas, my uh, uh, darkness, my ignorance, even that has a place uh, in my uh, existence. Uh, for example, I sleep. Sleeping is a tamas. And that is a very uh, holistic a way of life. I, I, I've done some work, comparative work, on uh, the Bhagavad Gita and Chinese philosophy. Uh, and actually published a co-edited book called Brahman and Dao, And I have a chapter there on the Gita and Chinese philosophy. And that brings from the Gita what I call the naturalistic aspects. Things which don't come so uh, in, in the Gita's uh, 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 meeting with the Western thought it brings the ying and yang uh, aspects. And uh, I think the Gita actually has this, these naturalistic uh, aspects uh, which are very interesting, very interesting. And see they see reality in a different way, in a non-rational way, in a more of a particular uh, a world through the gunas, which is a whole, Uh, other view, which is there in the Gita. So I I think the Gita is fascinating from each and every point of view you look at
1: it. So so do do you see, um, for the benefit of our audience, are certain chapters dedicated to certain stories of the house?
0: Well, in general, uh, yes, I would say first chapter is first story. Then second chapter, you have the whole ladder all the way from the lower uh, all the way up. Then third chapter karma yoga would basically be a, a first cha- a first story, uh, and then uh, a fourth chapter various things. Fifth chapter very similar with uh, a third chapter also a, th- a first story a dharma, and then sixth chapter is uh, definitely a yogic, a very distinctly a, a second story, and then seventh chapter is that's where the text enters the third story from the beginning uh, very clearly even zener points out that there's a change of uh, values there the beginning of the seventh chapter it goes into theology uh, visions of divinity of godhead about uh, how god can be seen in the world ninth chapter is also similar eighth chapter goes a little down uh, to uh, the uh, second story and now i'm 10th chapter will again be divinity and 11th, divinity, 12th, also, and then 13th goes uh, down uh, to the yogi plane of the second chapter. A uh, 14th, a uh, 15th, 15th is another story because it shows the whole ladder, but uh, 16th is the lower one, the demons, uh, uh, and then the uh, 17th and the first half of 18th will be again the gunas. Uh, the humanistic platform of various levels of, uh, of action, to the to three and then at the end, uh, from verse 45, before the summary of the Bhagavad Gita. So, yes, you can actually uh, show the stories, the levels through the text. When, when does it go higher? When does it go lower? Basically, the middle of the Gita, chapters uh, 7 to 12 are the highest level, with the exception of chapter 8, which is different, uh, uh, different, uh, 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 it's, uh, slightly lower. I know traditional commentators like to divide the Gita into the uh, first six, second six, and last six chapters. It's, it works, but no, it doesn't work that well uh, because the text is more uh, complicated, more uh, sophisticated. But you can, I, 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 I certainly try to uh, point at uh, the levels through the commentary on which level the, the text is speaking.
1: So when you, for example, say that um, the, the, the there's a different turn, uh, there's a different tone that occurs from chapter seven onwards. The introduction of um, this mystical dimension is that retained throughout, or is that a, a theme that's concentrated in the middle of the Gita?
0: Well, the, the peaks are uh, chapter seven, uh, then chapter nine, uh, and then chapter uh, ten. That's where Krishna reveals his divinity and Arjuna surrenders. He says, I accept your divinity. And then Krishna describes how he's to be seen in the world. So that would be, I think, uh, the highest theological uh, peaks. The 11th chapter is also, it's different, but it's also a revelation, uh, the Odyssey, uh, revelation. Uh, so yeah, that, these chapters would be the peak, uh, the theological peak of the Gita. And then at the end of the Gita, uh, the text returns to these uh, peaks uh, almost word for word. I mean, the concluding verse of chapter nine is there in 1865, more or less the same verse, maybe one word uh, difference. So becoming devoted and so forth.
1: One of the principles of ring composition is that um, the composition ends where it begins. It comes full circle. It's a ring. Whether the middle, the midpoint, or the middle is is highlighted, it's featured, it's the most important, it's central, literally central, as well as thematically central.
0: I'm not sure it's the most important, but it's the highest. I think it's all uh, it's all important. I mean, just just a second, the second the the second part. I mean, the, the middle chapters in themselves would be sufficient. The whole thing together uh, creates these dynamics. But uh, yes, the, the the middle part. Is uh, in many ways the highest theological parts. That's where uh, one goes beyond the struggle with the senses and the mind and actually uh, attains visions, darshan. I, I, I think I mentioned it in the commentary that at this point the conversation is not any more argumentative but rather a visionary. tells open your eyes and see. I am the taste of water, the light of the sun and the moon, the ability. Or, or, or humanity in the human being, and so forth. That, that's a vision. It's not an argument. It's not uh, imperative. It's a vision. Open your eyes and look around. See see how the world is structured. Look around. You see divinity everywhere. I think it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, verses. Uh, and they are basically darshans, visions, mystical visions, if you like.
1: So it's... Um... From one perspective, it seems to make sense that they begin on the battlefield and uh, ascend into this more spiritual, mystical space in the heart of the matter and then return towards the battlefield at the end of the text. There seems yes, to be yeah, an yeah. Over, overarching up the mountain, down the mountain. Yes. Fields.
0: you Going up the mountain and then down the mountain, but going through a whole journey and then returning to the
1: battlefield, but enlightened this time, enlightened. Yeah. Um, was there um, was there anything about this um, this process of yours writing this book? Uh, was there anything that was particularly um, either challenging, or did you were you surprised in some ways? Is something that struck you? Could you comment about what you what you learned from, uh, while writing this book, or what what uh, were there any bumps in the road?
0: Well it was it was a journey. I first wrote a, a Hebrew edition, and uh, that was good uh, but then I went to study in Oxford, and that that was where I wrote the mature book uh, the English version. I did the whole thing from the beginning again did a new translation I mean the same translation but I did from the beginning. I expanded the commentary and i I felt that actually. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm coming with something new, Uh, actually a friend of mine who's a philosopher, he said you actually, uh, your your, your argument is that you have uh, discovered a philosophical book that actually uh, the Gita is not only a a wonderful uh, work of uh, wisdom or spirituality, but it's actually a real unified uh, philosophy, that, 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 that idea I, I very much felt uh, in Oxford, that I felt that I was kind of the, one of the uh, centers of a uh, world scholarship. And from that point of view, I said, wow, I have a new philosophy, uh, Asian philosophy, Indian philosophy, Hindu philosophy, uh, to, uh, uh, that's what I'm actually doing. And I did that at the theology faculty, the University of Oxford, And that place is actually traditional. Many many great theologians actually work there. So I feel like, yes, this is the place to work out uh, a philosophy with the world uh, ambitions. And I start talking about the Gita as a potential philosophy for the 21st century, something which can unite East and West, which has also theistic uh, trends, which can correspond with uh, Western uh, spirituality, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. Uh, it also has Chinese elements or elements which can correspond with Chinese uh, philosophy, as I mentioned, Yin Yang, the Gunas, and uh, other things, Tao, Brahman. And I actually start to see the Gita as a potentially, a potentially twenty-first world philosophy. Uh, which, to my mind, is not in the east, but in the middle, in, in between east and west. East means China, west means the West, and the uh, geographically uh, in between. So yes, I started uh, to think in these terms uh, while uh, while doing the work while writing the book.
1: So, could you maybe clarify for us when you say you consider it now um, philosophy uh, rather than just? Um, wisdom or lore or, or, or spiritual nourishment. You know, in what sense do you mean that? Do you mean, like, in what sense do you mean you've started considering it philosophy proper?
0: Well, uh, I think that, uh, first of all, because of uh, due, uh, political uh, changing circumstances, uh, Asia is not anymore the Far East, as it used to say, but becomes much more uh, central. And much more uh, dominant, also in terms of uh, philosophy. So I think it's less esoteric and uh, and more applicable. Yeah, I actually think in these terms I have various ideas how to apply the Gita uh, in day to day life. I yeah, I I even think that some of the Western terms could correspond to the Varnas. For example, we have. Uh, we have the business uh, sector, which corresponds to the Vaishyas. We have the public circle, the government, army, uh, administration that corresponds to the Chhatriyas. We have the uh, third sector, se- sector as they call it, of, the, of educators that could correspond to the uh, Brahmins. So I have some ideas how the Gita can actually be uh, applicable, how uh, it can actually be turned into a philosophy uh, which could uh, unify East and West, be accepted by uh, Western thinkers, uh, Eastern thinkers. I, mean, I, I actually have these ideas of, uh, of the Gita as a potentially uh, universal, uh, yes, doctrine, philosophy, uh, which uh, fits, uh, which is suitable for post-modernity. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think that modernity has its uh, underlying assumptions uh, which may be questionable. I mean, a human being has rational, uh, rationality being uh, the central quality of a human being, uh, the idea of uh, a choice, free choice. I'm not sure. I think uh, the Gita is much more uh, postmodern and uh, much more fitting uh, a postmodernity in that uh, one has different... Degrees of subjectivity according to one's position in the Gunas. In these terms, I see the Gita as a postmodern, potentially a postmodern global philosophy.
1: You, in, in your perspective, do you see any potential intrigues or pitfalls to this universalizing of the Gita? Do you, do you see any? drawbacks? Would you consider, I mean, it it seems to me what you're saying is that the the Gita uh, is potentially an adequate universal philosophy to be applied to postmodern life. And so might might there, in your perspective, be any pitfalls with that line of thinking?
0: Well, uh, if it becomes too uh, nationalistic, uh, it can be a pitfall. I mean, it can can easily lose its spirituality and become uh, chauvinistic, uh, nationalistic, uh, violent. That would be a pitfall. Uh, It's difficult sometimes to keep the spirituality and it's easier to kind of uh, (coughs) accept the more external, I would say, uh, aspects. So yeah, every philosophy has a pitfall. And uh, the Gita can also be misused. Uh, no doubt, I don't think that uh, every, everything said uh, on you know, the strength of the Gita is always uh, absolute truth. Uh, uh, but every philosophy can be misused, and also the Gita, so it it has potential pitfalls. I'm, not, I, I'm sure it does. But by and large, I think it has potential to contribute in the present day and age, in 21st century. But of course, you can have pitfalls. The other philosophies can be uh, also very worthwhile. I, I don't think that this is the only way. And, and, and you know, it has to be a balanced approach uh, to every,
1: every philosophy. So you see it, you see it as um, one of several sources of philosophical, spiritual inspiration to practically change uh, the postmodern world or way of life.
0: Yeah, I see that as a potential philosophy, not the only way, but I see it. And I also think that with the rise of Asia, both China and India, they very much want to have their voice also not only financially and politically, but also philosophically. And it might happen gradually, maybe yes, maybe not, that there'll be some kind of unification between Indian, Chinese, and Western philosophy. And the Gita can potentially occupy a place, even a central place there. But let's see, I can't really foresee the future, but there is a potential there, which I do see. I was also working in Hong Kong. I was teaching there for a few years at Chinese University of Hong Kong. And I also saw the ongoing attempts to articulate contemporary Chinese philosophy. I see it in India. So it might happen, and the Gita may uh, occupy a place there. Are also, there, there is much, uh, many attempts to articulate neo-Gandhian philosophy. Now it's 150, is 150 birth anniversary, and Gandhi, of course, also uh, his, uh, uh, his his ideas were focused around uh, the Gita in many ways.
1: So clearly, from our conversation, um, the, you enjoy comparative work. So that you've looked looked at the Gita and you've mentioned in passing some comparison uh, to Chinese religious texts. Are you currently working on any comparison or maybe comment on your your, your favorite or most fruitful point of comparison?
0: Well, uh, I I did work, as I mentioned, on comparative Indo-Chinese ideas, published a book there. I published another co-edited book with Judith Greenberg uh, just in uh, 2018, last year, about comparative uh, Hindu-Jewish studies, uh, uh, Hindu, Hinduism and Judaism. And right now I'm editing a book on the Gita uh, to be published in India, uh, an edited volume on the Gita. This one is not a comparative volume, but a book on the Gita, uh, which hopefully will, uh, will be impressive year or
1: whatever. So tell us a little bit about the edited volume. Is there a specific theme or bent? or t- I mean, how many, how many papers are in this volume? And is there, what unifies them? What is, what is the, the purpose of this, um, this collection?
0: Well, that edited volume, we have, a, we have about a 10 chapters, out of 10 or 9 we'll see, uh, with some famous uh, writers, such as uh, Arvind Sharma, and uh, we have a paper by the late Joseph O'Connell, uh, the Canadian, uh, Canadian scholar uh, who passed away 2012. And we have a chapter by uh, Richard Davis, who just uh, published, uh, I mean, a few years ago, his book, The Bhagavad Gita Biography. Uh, I would say that uh, I, I'm, I'm the editor of that volume. I write the introduction. And then I write about the structure. That structure is, uh, I would say, the unifying uh, theme. Uh, I also uh, quote Arvind Sharma's chapter, where he speaks about the idea of the ladder as a way to interpret the Bhagavad Gita. Not the only way, though, but it is a way he mentioned the ladder. I uh, very much quote uh, Joseph O'Connell's chapter, who is looking at the very interesting conjecture between bhakti, devotion, and dharma or karma. Uh, it's a question. And uh, he mentions very particularly, he writes quite a bit about uh, this uh, thinking, which I mentioned, Bhishman Chakravarti. And so this, uh, from my point of view, is uh, the unifying uh, unifying uh, structure of that book too. See, I'm unifying structures. I. I, I I always do that. Uh, We have have a chapter by Karl Olson on on, uh, Shankara's Gita's commentary. Uh, Then we have a chapter by uh, Alexander uh, Muskoko uh, about uh, the Bhagavad Gita and Sri uh, Vaishnavism. I mean, we take a Ramanuja and then... It's Shankara and then a Ramanuja. Uh, Richard Davis's chapter is about the Gita Mahatmyas Uh, and then we have a chapter by Jim Ryan who writes about uh, the nationalistic uh, thinkers, uh, Gandhi, uh, Shirobindo, and uh, Bal Gangadar Tilak, their their understanding of the Gita. And then we have a chapter by uh, John Luling who is writing about the Gita of the Gurus and he takes five gurus. And writes how they uh, interpreted the Gita's, uh, their, their their Gita commentaries. There may be another chapter which I'm not sure yet. That chapter I wrote about the Gita as potentially a uh, all Indian uh, book, and in that chapter I uh, show how the Gita can be compatible with uh, with nine religions in India. Of course, Hinduism, uh, then Buddhism, quite easy, and then Jainism, of course then Sikh religion, uh, then uh, Judaism, some Jews in India, Christianity, of course, uh, then Islam, I show how the Gita can be compatible with Islam, uh, and then Baha'i and Zoroastrian religions. So we'll see if that chapter will be included, but that's uh, basically the book with myself, then Arvind Sharma, Carl Olson, Alexander Uskakov, Joseph O'Connor's chapter, Richard Davis, Jim Ryan, and
1: John Lulance. Well, that certainly sounds like a fascinating uh, collection of papers. Uh, Mm -hmm. We'll have to have you back on the program once that new book uh, emerges. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So for those of you listening, uh, we have been speaking with Dr. Itamar Tiroor at Zafart Academic College um, in Israel about uh, a book that was actually originally published in 2010 with Ashgate and is uh, just now this year 2019 out with Rutledge India it is a book on a very famous uh, Hindu text the Bhagavad Gita um, the title is Exploring the Bhagavad Gita Philosophy, Structure and Meaning thank you very much for this very fascinating chat
0: thank you so much it was wonderful to be
1: here. all right take care uh, for those of you listening until next time keep reading take care